The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program, old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour has uh, written an important book called Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. The author is Jackie Abrams. She joins me by phone. Hi, Jackie. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Tom. Um, let me, there's, there are so many ways I want to go at this, but let me start here. Um, you were able to prove systemic racism in your workplace and keep your job. That seems almost oxymoronic. Well, well, Tom, let me clarify. So Hush Money is inspired by true events, and it tells the story of one woman, but I cannot disclose who that woman is because I have to protect her identity. Okay. Um, if you read the book, you'll find out, you know, what she went through, you know, everything that she suffered, all of the mistakes that she made, and then how she was able to learn from those mistakes and subsequently prove the systemic racism that she was experiencing and keep her job. But Tom, it's important uh, to keep her identity hidden simply because as the book indicates, um, she was given hush money at the end. And Tom, I I don't know if you are um, familiar with how hush money works, but oftentimes when you are paid hush money, it doesn't come with just a a, a smile. They actually make you sign a, a confidentiality agreement saying that you're not going to talk about what happened to you. Yeah, the famous, so the famous non-disclosure agreement. 
Exactly. So that's why the story had to be told this way. It had to be fictionalized instead of putting it as a, a memoir, for example, because there is some liability to this person, and, and that was a way for her to still tell what happened to her without putting her or in legal jeopardy. Well, you know, it's it's easy to confuse y- you with the character because you have talked about being discriminated against uh, multiple times during your career in higher education and that was one of the one of the little notes that I made is that I wanted to drill down on that because a lot of us like to think that higher education is a little bit more enlightened you know I'll tell you and and you bring up a, a valid point Tom Um, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job uh, was actually a joint effort uh, by me and my two daughters. All three of us had careers that were repeatedly derailed, and all three of us started working in higher education. But it went beyond just the higher education industry, Tom. Um, we went to different industries, and, and we all suffered the same fate. And so I, I do want to just say when it comes to uh, higher education, though, um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the, the reviews. Um, right now, we have 94 reviews on Amazon with the five-star rating. And out of those 95 reviews, one of them just really sticks out. Uh, there was a person who said that she is uh, in the higher education industry and that she is responsible uh, for researching, and I I believe she said investigating uh, claims of discrimination in higher education. And she went on to say in her review that the book is on target because it happens so much uh, in that particular industry. And, and and that's the the thing that seems very eye opening to me, Jackie. Because you know we we think of higher education as being, as I as I mentioned before, more enlightened. And yet you talk about um, you know dealing with bureaucracy and and covert and overt racism. What what's the difference between covert and overt racism, Jackie? Oh, that is a wonderful question, Tom. Um, So let me just paint a picture in your mind for a minute, if I could. Yeah, please. Um, Imagine that you are uh, a person who is working, I'll just say a college, because that's what my um, story is based on, a for-profit college. Um, Let's say that you are someone who gets a job in a for-profit college, um, and you are also one of, of two people who gets that same job. So they have multiple positions. One person is white, for example, and one person is black, for example. And let's say you both have degrees, you both have the same level of experience, and you both get uh, the same job. Well, if you were to pay, let's say, the white person a salary that's, you know, way more than you're going to pay the black person, just as a, a rough example. Let's say you give them a salary of 20000 more than you pay the black person. Well, that's something you could easily prove. So that's an example of um, overt racism. Because if you were to um, investigate it, 
it's something you could easily prove because all you have to do is look at the payroll records, right? Sure. So that, that's the overtype. Now let's take that same scenario, Tom, and let's say you've got these two people. They are both, you know, working in the same job with the same requirements, the same title. They have the same credentials, and they have about the same level of experience. But one person, you put uh, someone in charge to train them, and they give them the most outstanding level of training that they can give a person. So they set that person up for success. They're giving them all the wisdom, the tools, the resources, and the knowledge to do that job and do it well. But when it's time to train the other person, you withhold the resources, you withhold the knowledge. Um, in Ebony's case, you intentionally train her the wrong way. Well, that's an example of covert racism because it's not something that you could easily prove. I mean, how do you prove that someone intentionally trained you the wrong way on a job they themselves have been doing correctly and perfectly for years? And that's where the hidden part comes in. So, so Tom, uh, what my book highlights is that racism in the workplace is not like uh, racism was decades ago when it was easily spotted and it was more overt. Um, today's racism, modern-day racism, is more covert. It's hidden, and it's much, much harder to prove. Yeah, the example you just gave, Jackie, was much more subtle than what I was thinking, and I was just thinking in terms of, um, you know, two people, one black, one white, with with similar circumstances, and one gets promoted, um, which is not nearly as subtle as, as what you just described. Exactly, and, and that's the, the whole um, premise behind my book. It, it's to show, show people um, what really happens in um, the workplace because, you know, Tom, if you go back and you look at a lot of our modern-day books and movies and television shows, you know, they really focus on uh, racism, like I was telling you, that, that happened decades ago where, you know, it was easily spotted. You know, someone would call you a a racial slur in the open and public for everyone to see and hear. But that's not what folks are up against today in the workplace. Um, they are up against that hidden form. It, it's morphed and it is more subtle. It's more covert. And because it's harder to prove, uh, a lot of people get away with it. And so you have folks in our black and brown community who are, are trying to, to work on these jobs but they end up suffering racial trauma, and they find themselves facing really three impossible choices, Tom. Um, they can either suffer in silence because they want to keep their job and they don't want to make waves, um, but then it gets to be too much, so they, they consider resigning to keep their sanity. Um, and then a lot of people will try to wait it out, which is what Ebony did in the end. She wanted to wait it out because in her case, this was the best job at $16 an hour that she ever had. And as a single uh, mother and who also was taking care of her mother who was battling cancer, she couldn't walk away from that $16 an hour job easily to go find another one. So she wanted to try 
and wait it out, you know, stay off the grid, stay off the radar, try to do the best job that I can. Um, but then she realized that wasn't a good option either because as she's trying to wait it out, they started setting her up behind the scenes and derailing her career. Do you think that, um, I, I'm sure there are examples of covert racism that are intentional, but do you think a lot of it is not intentional and harder to admit? I'll be honest with you, um, Tom. I do believe some people um, suffer from what you're you're talking about as unconscious bias. Yeah. But I, but I'll tell you, um, the mass majority of people that I talk to, that I know, and what I experienced and my daughter's experience, there was nothing unconscious about it. We were targeted specifically because we were black and there was no um there was no getting around what happened to us that they knew what they were doing um and they were vicious and cruel about it um that that's that's very different than doing something unconsciously how much of your experience and your daughter's experiences um ended up helping to tell the fictional story? It helped a great deal, Tom, and, and I'll tell you why. Um, for me specifically, Tom, um, I am still trying to recover and heal from my own experiences with racism in the workplace. Um, I had a career, as you know, in higher education that spanned nearly two decades, Tom, um, so if you can just imagine for a moment what it's like to uh, work in a company, you get this job and you you believe that this job is going to give you an opportunity to live the American dream. And you know what that is, where you can uh, get a good job that pays a good wage. And with the income that you get from that job, you can own a house, you can buy a car, um, you can not only provide for your family, but even have enough money to pay your bills. And Tom, you're good at this job. This is a job that you are excelling at. Your performance reviews are outstanding. You are doing exceptionally well. And this career that you are building um, is going in the right direction. And you've got a great boss who supports you and thinks the world of you and is really there um, valuing your efforts and, and giving you the level of respect that you deserve. But, but Tom, oftentimes what happens, um, you get this job and it starts out great. But all it takes is a small change in the organization, and it's usually a, a change in leadership. So in Ebony's case, this great boss that she had left the organization for personal reasons. Jackie, and I, now, I, hate, I, I hate to have to do this, but I need to put a comma here. Um, I have okay. a break coming up. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Because I want to talk about this some more. Oh, absolutely. Okay. My guest is uh, Jackie Abrams. She is the author of Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. And we'll be back with more right after this. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Vi from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Jonah Bodie. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Hello. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? Mm. It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of a uh, fascinating book uh, called um, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. It's written by uh, Jackie Abram, and uh, she joins me by phone. Jackie, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, no worries. It's a pleasure. And Jackie, I I, I will uh, uh, admit, although you, you sort of caught me uh, during the first segment, I have not had a chance to read this book yet. I'm working from notes and a synopsis, and I mistook it as a memoir. It's not. It's uh, a fictional account uh, based on some true in- events, including... Um, some of your own experiences and those of your daughters who helped with the book, and um, I just I, I just wanted to point that out that it's it's uh, not a memoir, but it is based on true events. And just before the break, you were uh, talking a little bit about um, how uh, you see um, the intentionality of. Uh, certainly overt racism, but, but even in some cases of covert racism. Yes. And uh, before the break, I was uh, painting a picture for you yeah. and talking about how, you know, there would be a subtle change in leadership. And now you've gone from having a great boss and a great career to a horrific boss and a horrific career. And so in Ebony's case, for example, you know, she stayed on this job for five years. Um, But during that five years, uh, she suffered and encountered racism that was so horrific and severe, Tom, that not only was she stripped of all her dignity and her confidence and her strength uh, over a five-year period as she was abused and tormented and harassed and humiliated, But because of the racial trauma that she suffered, um, and this is something you really don't hear a lot about with the uh, annual diversity trainings in corporate America, um, the racial trauma that she suffered had her on the brink of despair, Tom, uh, considering both homicide because she was at the point where she was contemplating killing her boss um, and suicide, you know, she, she suffered and she, she knew that this job was being stripped away from her and she was being set up as an incompetent employee when she had been performing above and beyond before this new leadership came in. And so she considered suicide and found herself, uh, you know, on the verge of killing herself. And, and Tom, you had asked me how my experiences um contributed to uh, the success of the book and how I wrote it. And it's because I can relate to what she went through. Uh, I myself uh, suffered a lot of racial trauma, Tom. And as I mentioned, I I am still trying to recover. Uh, writing this book and telling our stories uh, was part of that healing process, but I am still um, still hurting. And I, too, found myself on the brink of both uh, homicide and suicide. I, I was standing on the edge of a, a beach called Salt, Salt Creek Beach in, in California, 
uh, considering killing myself because it's it's really a very difficult thing, Tom. When you when you live in a world where you cannot be successful and you cannot thrive and you have children and a family to take care of and your career is repeatedly stripped away from you. And that was the other thing I wanted people to understand. Uh, racism in the workplace is not a one-time thing that happens to our black and brown people. It happens repeatedly. And even if you leave that job and you go somewhere else, you can be building that career, but you never get that sense of security because all it takes is a subtle change and your career is derailed. And in my case, Tom, over uh, the nearly two decades of my career, my career was repeatedly derailed. And so the rug is pulled from under you. You lose everything that you've accumulated as you look for new work. You get a new job. You do what you need to do. You've, you've met all the, the check boxes. You got the credentials. You have the degrees. You are performing above and beyond again. And then a subtle change happens, and once again, the rug is pulled from under you. And I'll, I'll tell you, Tom, the last time my career was derailed, I, I, I sank, Tom. I, I sank so low, and I'm still trying to recover. You mentioned in the last segment, almost parenthetically, something I wanted to, to unpack a little bit, and that's diversity trainings. I've had a number of uh, people who are considered experts in the field, both black and white, that work for big companies that are trying to deal with issues of, of racism, certainly with issues of diversity within their their corporate structure. And when you mentioned it, you mentioned it almost as if it was for show only. Did you I, intend I that, think, or, or do you think some of these programs are helping? I, I think there is a lot of value in diversity trainings. I don't think it's for show, but here's what I do think. Diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings have been around for decades, but as many people of color will tell you, um, they don't seem to be as effective as they could be in preventing or reducing racism, oftentimes because, Tom, they're limited in scope. Um, you you go through a training, and it's once a year for starters. You know, maybe it's annually or semi-annually. And the part of the training that's dedicated to racism, it's going to give you, you know, a few scenarios about what racism looks like in the workplace, but it tends to focus on the overt parts, you know, the easily spotted parts that right, I was telling right. you about. Those are what those examples usually have. Today's racism is more hidden, like I was telling you when I gave you the example. It's more, uh, it's more covert. And so because the diversity trainings aren't really touching as well as they could be, on the covert aspects of racism. And then the other part that the diversity trainings um, are, are, in my opinion, missing is they, they don't address the emotional, mental, and physical aspects of racial trauma. So when you're doing these trainings and it's only once a year or twice a year, 
if you have someone on your staff who fundamentally at their core believes that it is okay to treat uh, people of color differently based on, you know, maybe how they were raised and what's ingrained inside them, you're not going to be able to change their hearts and minds and their fundamental core beliefs with a once-a-year training. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense, and that's why I wanted to unpack that a little bit. I didn't want to dismiss it completely, but but at the same time, I, I wanted to use it as, as a way to move into a conversation about what we can do to try to make it different. What is What does it take to make it different? How do we get two races who who may even have some uh some cultural differences um exactly to communicate exactly. to communicate in a way that that finds common ground because typically we look at racism as being a one-way street it's it's you know the the white hierarchy of a of corporate america um you know, being acting in racist ways against people of color, but it goes the other way too. And and how do we how do we get both sides speaking the same language? Well, if I might make two comments. Um, yeah, please. When, when you when you're talking about racism, Tom. Um, Yes, you, you have people on both sides who may have biases towards each other that are... Uh, and know, biases is the way. better word. Yes. But the, the difference between having biases that go both ways and racism is that if you are working in an organization and someone has uh, these biases against you, but they are also in a position of power and influence to put into action policies and actions and people that will act on these biases you have. That's the difference. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. Um, but But it still gets to this idea of there are a lot of white people who may inadvertently be participating but don't intend to that would like to figure out how to do things differently and and, uh, and that's and, the reason and they're not uh, sure how the well that's the reason i i wrote hush money because like you just mentioned there are a lot of wonderful white people who really you know they they want to do the right thing they want to help. They, they want to make sure that they are, you know, doing this in a, in a positive way that can actually affect positive change. But in order for you to be able to help, you have to first of all understand it. And so that's what my book, Hush Money, does. It actually takes the reader and it puts them into the shoes of a racial discrimination victim to see and feel the full impact of racism, the full impact, the overt, the covert, and the racial trauma that you never get to see. And so if you are someone who wants to, to help and you want to get a deep understanding, 
this book is going to do that for you. Um, it was released, uh, officially launched a few months ago, but like I said, it's already got 94 uh, reviews on Amazon with a five-star rating, and a lot of those reviews are coming from white people um, who are allies, and they just want to uh, get a deeper understanding, and it makes me just smile, and it warms my heart when I read their reviews and, and they tell me what they've learned and how, you know, they their eyes have been opened and now they see things differently in, in, a, in a clearer way than they've been able to up to this point. Um, but, Tom, you also mentioned something else. You, you asked me what employers can do. You know, if they have people on their staff that are either, you know, engaging in racist behaviors intentionally or they, they, they are doing um, intentional things based on, you know, biases that they may have. And uh, Hush Money is a great book to, um, to address that also because I do have a lot of employers who reach out to me. I, I think, Tom, their eyes were opened um, last year to the possibility that they may have some some uh, undesirable behavior going on in their organizations. And I think that all started um, with the brutal killing of George Floyd on, on national TV. I, I think and that I, was disturbing for anybody with an ounce of humanity. Yes, it was. It was absolutely horrific. Um, but it really, it served as a kind of a door opener. And so the conversations started occurring and, you know, people who have never experienced racism but want to be allies, you know, started asking questions and, and saying, you know, help us understand. And so for employers wanting to prevent racism, you know, hush money is great because it serves as a cautionary tell, showing the leaders in their organizations what can happen as uh, hush money spreads like wildfire through our black and brown communities because the book is spreading and people of color are reading this book and they're learning the, the new and the unconventional methods that this woman, Ebony, used to fight back. And so, you know, these employers who reach out to me, Tom, are smart enough to know that if someone fundamentally at their core believes that racism is okay, you're not going to unteach them of what they believe in a, a once-a-year training. But what I tell them is that, you know, do this. You don't have to uh, change your diversity training, but add hush money how one woman proved systemic racism in her workplace and kept her job as a component of that training and have your managers go through and read the book and discuss the chapters in a focus group. What better way? to stop a racist in their track than to show them the methods that people of color are learning through this book on how to turn the tables, prove the racism they're experiencing, and now putting that person who may be it doing these racist acts, whether it's known or unknown, at greater risk of being exposed. And so that's what I recommend that they do. Just add it as a component to your diversity training, and it will make a difference. You know, we mentioned the, the George Floyd killing, and while that may be the most dramatic, it 
is certainly not the first time that we've witnessed something that horrible and and a conversation begins and 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 the conversation may have been a little bit bigger a little bit more all-encompassing following George Floyd's death but we get to the point where everybody agrees that there are bad things happening that they shouldn't be happening that racism exists systemically um, overtly and covertly and 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 we come to this agreement that this is this is wrong but we don't seem to get a good idea on how to change it and how to be different do you understand what i mean by that and what i'm asking I do, and and this is what I what what I can say. Um, you know, Tom, you're right. Systemic racism is is real, and it affects us. It affects us in so many uh, different areas, from you know medical racism uh, to racism in uh, the police and the criminal justice system um, to racism in the workplace. I I don't have the answer to how we fix the bigger problem. What I can do, though, is is contribute in a way that that I know how, which is to to show anyone who wants to be an ally, who wants to get a deeper understanding, what racism in the workplace, modern day racism, looks and feels like in a real and modern way. I can put you into the shoes of a racial discrimination victim and you will feel it as if you're experiencing it yourself or if someone close to you is experiencing it. Um, I do this, Tom, because I, I, I'm doing what I can at $6 a book. And, you know, $6 is, is what you pay for a cup of coffee, Tom. Um, I'm, I'm doing this for $6 a book. Well, I don't spend $6 for a cup of coffee, <laughs> but I get your point, Jackie. <laughs> I, I do, unfortunately, every so often. <laughs> but, but Tom, I'm, I'm fighting racism in the workplace one book at a time because not only do racist police kill us in our communities, as we saw with George Floyd and so many others, but racist managers and HR folks also kill our careers in the workplace, which is a different type of death that really, it really results in racial trauma that puts a person on the brink of, of suicide and homicide. And, and so if I can contribute in this one way and, and show people what it looks and feels like and, and, and give people what they need to help make positive changes, then I, I feel like we're, we're moving in the right direction. Well, I have to admit, I was one of those people who was ready to admit there certainly is a problem of racism in this country. It's, it is systemic. It is going on in, in neighborhoods and in corporate America. Um, but I'm not racist. And it wasn't until somebody challenged me that not being racist is not enough. You have to be anti-racist. Exactly. And, and I understand and, and, that, but mm -hmm. I, I still struggle with, and then what? <laughs> what are the things that I need to do 
um, to contribute to some sort of healing? Well, I'll give you an example, and that, that is just a wonderful point that you brought up about uh, being an anti-racist. So, you know, it starts with doing, you know, it doesn't have to be a grand gesture. It can be something simple. You know, so for example, you know, remember how um, we were talking about the two examples in the workplace? Yeah. Let's say you, you are a, a person in leadership in, in the company. And you observe that, you know, this person is being treated differently. So I'll give you an example right out of my book. Um, Ebony wasn't sure if she was being discriminated against because she had never experienced anything like this in her life. But she noticed that, you know, when this new boss started, um, there were small things that were happening, like, you know, he would bring in uh, snacks from home. And he would offer snacks to everyone except her. Little things like that. And then he started uh, having lunch meetings where, you know, he brought in food and had lunch meetings, but she was excluded. And then he started having team meetings where he was, she wasn't invited. So if you are someone who is a recipient of all the wonderful things he's doing, you know, like he's... Um, bringing snacks for everyone and you notice that Ebony is the only one that he's not uh, offering any snacks to, just something as simple as, you know, hey, Malcolm, um, I noticed Ebony didn't get a snack. You know, maybe you should offer a snack to her. That would be the right thing to do. Or, you know, Malcolm, we're having these team meetings and she's part of the team. Doesn't she need this information too? Let's call her in here and have a full team meeting. You know, little things like that. And those and and I'm glad you said that because um, those are things you call it a little thing, but to me it doesn't look like a little thing, and yet it's a small thing we can do to yeah. help balance the scale a little bit. Jackie, I, I could talk about this with you for hours, but we're almost out of time, and I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. You know, the best way to reach me right now, I'll be honest, is through Facebook. Um, cool. Facebook is, I, I live on Facebook, and so um, <laughs> I have people who, who message me on my personal Facebook, and I love it. Um, so my name is spelled J-A-C-Q-U-I-E. My last name is spelled Abram, A-B-R-A-M. My book is called Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and kept her job, I promise you it's a page turner. You will be not, not be able to put the book down. It's $6 right now, and I, I said that's about what you pay for a cup of coffee. You'll get a wealth of knowledge. Uh, my book is number one in eye-opening African-American women's fiction on Goodreads. It's number eight on findthisbest.com in uh, Best African-American Christian Fiction. And uh, a week ago, it had gotten to number 33 on Amazon. Well, in, Jackie, uh, unfortunately, Best I have to end it there. But uh, uh, thank you so well, much, and you. keep up the good work. 
Thank you so much, This is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Fine, fine welcome. And it's certainly very gratifying to know that you feel this way and that you people have accepted my being able to sub for Johnny this week because it seems to have caused quite a bit of difficulty around here at NBC. Uh, earlier this evening, I was in Johnny's dressing room, and one of the wardrobe mistresses walked by, and she sticks her head in the door. She sees me, and she says, What are you doing in Johnny Carson's dressing room? <laughs> Said, if he catch you in here, this is the last time you're going to be on this show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very glad... <laughs> I'm very glad that you feel that way. We will, during the course of the week, find some way to overcome her problem and firmly convince her that NBC, without a doubt, has established within everyone's mind that it is the full-color network. <laughs> right? It's fun for me. It's this, this entire week is going to be fun. I've looked forward to it. And, uh, in fact, to stand here and act so cool, I'm excited. I'm not nervous, I'm excited. In the dressing room, I felt good. I was thinking, you know, just different ways of expressing the enthusiasm, and I was saying to myself, Woo! (laughs) Well, it's made me think back. This is a long way from where I started. You know, I used to work in a drive-in movie. That's right, it was really rough. But it was fun. It was a hard job, but it was fun. I used to go around and shine the light in the car, tell people when the picture's over. I got $25 a week and all I could see. I'd walk around and say, the picture's over, the picture's over. I tried a lot of things. I tried a lot of things. I feel that I'm prepared to assume the responsibility for, well, this job. This is, well, this job is like, uh, I feel like this job is like being at a weenie roast with me being the weenie. I just threw that in, you know? But, uh, yes, yes. I, I tried a lot of things. You know, coming along, I, uh, during my younger years, I tried, uh, I operated my own business. It was a lemonade stand, you know? And uh, it was doing pretty good. It, the way it went is I had a big sign over the lemonade stand called Flip's Lemonade, all you can drink for a dime. Well, that was great, and it was going along pretty well. But then you always run into a wise guy, you know? One day a guy comes up to the stand, he says, uh, is this lemonade as good as everybody says it is? 
And I said, you better believe it. This lemonade is just as good as what your mother used to make. And the guy said, hmm, that gotta be some very good lemonade. <laughs> I said, and in addition to that, I give you all you can drink for a dime. You can't beat that. He said, let me tell you how I fix this lemonade. I put extra sugar in the glass. So that when you turn the glass up to drink it, the lemonade starts swirling around and that makes the sugar swirl and lemonade gets sweeter as you go down. You know, as it goes down, makes it taste better. And uh, then the lemonade is very cold. I put extra ice in the pitcher and then I pack the pitcher in the ice. I said, yeah, that's all right. He said, uh, give me a glass. So I gave him a glass and uh, he says, I'll have another glass. I said, well, that'll be another dime. He said, now hold on. He said, the sign says all you can drink for a dime. I said, but you had a glass, didn't you? And I said, yes. I said, well, that's all you can drink for a dime. <laughs> People caught on to that pretty quick, so I, I kind of cut the lemonade business loose, and I've worked toward tonight. And uh, during the course, now let me say, things are gonna be a little different with Johnny not here. The whole purpose of the show is fun. We're gonna try to have as much fun, you know? But other things will be different, such as uh, during the course of my opening spot, I'll eliminate Johnny's genuine, authentic golf swing. We won't have that this week. No, I wouldn't infringe upon the man's right to open, you know, that, that's not. That's his swing. You know, I swing another way. I got my own way of swing. <laughs> but uh, if, if Johnny's looking in tonight, I was thinking of some way. I don't play golf myself. Well, the ball is too small. If the ball was a little larger, I'd play. Uh, but in the elevator, the hotel I'm staying at, coming up on the elevator, I heard two guys discussing the game, and I thought it was a pretty amusing conversation. One fellow says to the other, he said, uh, say, George, he said, how's your golf game coming? George said, it's all right. It's all right. Well, I said, you should be pretty good. You and Freddie playing every other day. George said, look, said, don't mention Freddie's name to me. He said, I don't want to talk about Freddie, you understand? So don't bring his name up to me. Well, I said, but you and Freddie are such good friends. You guys play golf every other day. George said, well, not anymore. I said, well, what happened? I said, look, I said, do you want to play with a guy who cheats on the score? Want to play with a guy who cheats? A guy who, if he makes a hole in one, he's going to take off two? Do you want to play with you want to play with a guy who, who steals your clubs while you're watching the ball because somebody's already got your bag? So do you want to play with a guy who'll run through the clubhouse yelling burn baby burn? So do you want to play with a guy like that? And the fellow said, heck no. He said, well, neither do Freddie. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Hey, that wraps it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner Program. I want to say thanks to all my guests, fascinating people to talk to, including uh, this last hour with Jackie Abram, whose book, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. Fascinating story, to be sure. And the story of the people of uh, El Salvador uh, in the book by uh, Robin Broad and John Cavana, uh, who joined me uh, during the second hour. That book, The Water Defenders, How Ordinary People Saved a Country from Corporate Greed. And uh, we started out with Tom Hartman. He'll be, and that was an encore about the war on voting to remind people that tomorrow is a city council primary in the city of Flint. You should get out and vote. Um, in, in whatever community you're in. Tom Hartman will be back to talk about health care with us next month. Good night, everybody. The program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.